0: I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The rate run and your money as yields continue to move higher today. The 10-year up 50% now in just three months. So what is the risk to stocks if they keep going? We debate and discuss that today with our investment committee. Joining me for the hour are Stephanie Link, John Najarian. Amy Raskin is the chief investment officer of the Chevy Chase Trust. Michael Farr is the president of Farr Miller in Washington. Let's go to the markets, go to the wall. The 10-year hitting its highest level now since mid-March. That's where a lot of focus is all the way on the right-hand side of your screen. 118 is where the 10-year note yield currently sits. Stocks elsewhere have marginal losses for the Dow and the S&P 500. But, John Najarian, a lot of people now are talking about this Mm -hmm. move in interest rates. That's one of the states of play today, if you will. You've got these new vaccine guidelines. You've got earnings season about to begin. So where does this leave us?
1: Well, Scott, uh, after your uh, great interview with uh, Mr. Gunlock yesterday, uh, I think a lot of folks are focused on whether or not the upper end is really 150 for that 10-year, and they're worried about how quickly we get there. It's always that issue, Scott, the, uh, the gamma and the rate of change. That's one of the things that really can affect uh, investor sentiment, as well as, of course, the broad market and folks that are committing a lot of capital to it. Um, I'm not really thinking that the rates can run away from us here. And I know that's not what Jeff talked about yesterday either. Um, But I'm worried a little bit that this could be a catalyst for people being a little nervous in the short term. And as you know, I've sort of mentioned that repeatedly over the last month.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Not a grand warning or anything yesterday from from Gundlach. Um, Let's listen to what he told Mm me yesterday about valuations in the market and what he sees right now. We can talk about that on the other side go back for decades of stock market data, there are many valuation metrics that are in the top one percentile of overvaluation. So the thing that's keeping it going, though, of course, is the Fed. The Fed, with rates at zero and promises to stay at zero, um, allows for valuations to be you know, record-breakingly high. All right. So that was Gundlach yesterday. Uh, Valuations record-breakingly high. Talked about the market's leadership change. The fact that value is now leading growth. The big five are no longer leading. Emerging markets starting to outperform the U.S. What about this notion, Amy, about where valuations are and whether we're simply too stretched?
2: Um, We're certainly stretched. I mean, it could always go further. It could always go further into overdrive. And I think that's what the Fed wants So it's not a crazy bet, but we are more cautious right now. I agree with um, Jeff's comments 100 percent. Valuations are very stretched. And if yields continue to go up, I mean, we've heard for a year now that higher valuations are justified because yields have declined so much. Um, If yields go up, just intellectual honesty says the valuation multiples have to come down. Um, you know, 2018 is a great example. We had great economic growth. Earnings were up 20 percent, but the multiple contracted 26 percent. So the market was down. Um, we can easily see a repeat of that in 2021.
0: So, Michael Farr, this, this raises a great question. You know, yes, if rates continue to go up, you're going to have a conversation about compressing of, of multiples. And, and some of those growth stocks may, may face a reckoning as a result of that. On the other side of the coin, though, Let's not get overly crazy about where rates are. Okay, they're still low. There's still a lot of money sloshing around in the system from the Fed and otherwise. And you could be looking at a big stimulus package infrastructure under a President Biden and money needs to go somewhere. So mix that with the warnings from some others about valuation of the market.
3: Right. Well, Scott, this is why this is such a thorny issue for investors, because gun locks, right? You know, and others are talking about how bubbly this market feels. Doug Cass has been writing about it a lot more lately as well. You've got very high valuations that were driven and have been driven by a whole lot of monetary stimulus and low rates. And look what we're getting, more monetary stimulus and more low rates. I mean, you've got Janet Yellen and uh, Nancy Pelosi and Jay Powell elbowing each other out of the way to pour more punch in the punch bowl right now so they're not wrong the markets expensive or stocks are expensive but the jet fuel that has been lifting these prices doesn't show signs of stopping so now as an investor what do you buy and how you how do you deploy money and the answer is you know to be funny about it is just very damn carefully but uh, I think you, it does argue against buying a broad index, and it does, I think, make it a much tougher environment, but an important environment to be a stock picker, to do the fundamental research, to know what you own, because it, it's, this thing, I think, can get a lot more expensive. Trends on Wall Street last a lot longer than anybody ever thinks they're going to. It looks like the path of least resistance here is still up.
0: Yeah. Steph, um, you know, you weigh in on on what Gunlock has said and what some of the others are talking about now about valuation. You're leaning pretty heavy. And Steph's on the phone, by the way, uh, until we're able to work on her feed. Um, This idea of leaning into cyclicals, which you seem to be doing a little bit more that you're overweight in that area. Yes, you have a barbell approach, but maybe you've put a little bit weight, um, more weight on one end of the bar now.
4: Yeah, and I'm sorry about the connection. Um, but um, I think you have to just step back. And I think you have to say, why are rates rising? Rates, rates are rising because it's anticipating better growth. Better growth because of the more fiscal stimulus um, and that is coming. Um, And when you combine that with improvement in distributions of vaccines, and we have a long way to go on that front, but when you combine the two, that means you're going to see better GDP growth. You're going to see better earnings growth. And to your point about stretched stocks, growth is stretched. Housing stocks are stretched. Logistics stocks are stretched. But cyclicals are not stretched.
0: I
5: don't
4: know. Uh, uh, I I don't think they are. I mean, look at financials. Are small caps stretched?
0: Are small caps stretched? I mean, that was one of the points that Gunlock was making yesterday as he was talking about what the Russell uh, has done. And it's a point he's going to make today or maybe he's currently making it now on, on his webcast. Are they stretched?
4: Well, I'm not I'm not an investor in small cap, but they certainly have had a nice run in recovery. But I'm talking about financials. Most of the banks are trading below book. Some of the industrials are definitely at trough earnings. And so they have a lot of upside. How about the reopening names? How about the restaurants? And, and we talk about Marriott and Wynn all the time, because so those, those are the two reopening uh, travel leisure companies that I own. Those aren't stretched. They certainly had a nice recovery back, but they're still down quite a bit in the last year. So I'm looking for laggards. And to your point earlier, yes, I still have a barbell, but I have less of a barbell, because I think it's prudent to take profit, especially when I can't justify some of the valuations.
0: Wow, less less than a barbell now. I mean, because you've been a big proponent. I mean, that you've used that word um, so often over the last many months on strategy for our, our viewers <laughs> on, on how to play this thing. So, so you're going okay. So you you bought IBM. Okay, that's is yeah. that is that emblematic about what you're talking about? You bought IBM. You bought more of Lam Research. That sounds exactly of what you're speaking to.
4: Yes, yeah, I'm trying to stay consistent. I'm still diversified, Scott, but I do lean more towards the laggards and the cyclicals for the reopening companies. Um, so Salesforce, I took profits in, made a good, I mean, I made good money there. I still like it very much, and if it were to correct, I certainly would think about maybe getting back in. Twitter, I took gains. I had, I had a, like a, an average cost of in the low 30s, so I don't want to be too greedy, and I think the macro headlines are going to be a headwind and a distraction. And so then I put the money into IBM because, A, it's a laggard. B, we have a new CEO who's focused on growth markets, cloud, data analytics, AI, blockchain. And then they also did the Red Hat deal. We haven't even begun to see real synergies there. And they spun out their technology services business. So they're doing the right things. The stock trades at 11 times forward earnings. And it yields 5%, very low expectations with only six buys on the street versus 12 Uh, That are neutral or sell. So I'm trying to stay consistent. I'm trying to look for laggards. I'm trying to look for where everybody is not.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting, uh, your commentary and and certainly your moves. Let's bring in Ed Yardeni now. He's the president of Yardeni Research. Uh, Ed, welcome back. It's nice to see you. Happy New Year. Thank you, Scott. So I hope you heard the gunlock sound talking about uh, valuations to be, in his words, record breakingly high. Uh, Are you concerned, too? Because you've been really bullish.
6: Well, I'm, uh, I'm I'm concerned about valuation. Sure, certainly, uh, they're, they're not cheap. And uh, as Gunluck pointed out, uh, by uh, any historical precedent, they're, they're stretched. But uh, on the other hand, until recently, we had record low uh, uh, bond yields. We still have record low bond yields, by the way, in the corporate bond market. Uh, and the mortgage rates are at record lows. Over in Europe, uh, uh, government yields are at record lows. The, the outlier here, as you pointed out, is the, the 10-year government bond yield has moved up from about 0.5% last August to over 1% now, maybe 1.2% uh, shortly. And uh, that's got everybody spooked. I, I, I think it's actually a, a sign of confidence in the economy. And uh, it looks as though real GDP is gonna get back to where it started before the pandemic uh, by the first quarter of next year, which is really extraordinary. So the earnings picture is looking pretty good. Um, I'm still using, uh, I'm, I'm using 4,300 to the S&P 500 by the end of uh, this year and 4,800 by the end of next year. I would become a lot more concerned if we get there a lot sooner. And I have to admit to you, Scott, this, uh, this market's been stampeding over the bulls. I've been bullish since uh, March 25th in the morning. And uh, every time I've set my target, it just went, it's stomped all over me and went right ahead uh,
0: to, to higher highs. Do you see the 10-year yield hitting a 10-month high? We're showing it on the screen Right now, it, it's obviously a point of concern to some, not well, all. To to some, Scott, it- let me
6: make a an ob- Scott, let me make an observation here, and that mm. is, uh, th- there could be a bullish implication of all this. Uh, the Federal Reserve is watching that rate just the way we are, and I think the Federal Reserve would like to keep that bond yield closer to one percent than to two percent. I think they were trying to do that at the end of last year. It's just, my friends, the bond vigilantes are starting to get a little bit more antsy here about the economy being too strong, deficits being too large, too much government spending and inflation making the comeback. I will not be surprised if at some point here, if the bond yield continues to go up, if the Fed announces uh, what uh, they've called yield curve targeting, which basically means uh, setting a target for the bond yield. Well, that, it, would be a, that would be bullish. It would actually lead to a meltdown.
0: Yeah. I mean, the question is, what is the breaking point for that? And, and that was a point of conversation we had yesterday, too, with, You know, our own Jim Labenthal suggesting, well, 1.3 to 1.5 could be that point. Gunlock suggested, well, it's probably a little bit low. Maybe, you know, once you get past, if you do get past 1.5 percent on the 10-year, then maybe the Fed, you know, does something. That speaks, though, directly to the idea, uh, Ed, about what Michael Farr is talking about here, that it's really difficult to get overly negative when the Fed is still filling up the punch bowl, right? It's the old... And I I know I hate I I hate using it myself because I I I somewhat ridicule it when others do, too. It's this dance while the music's playing sort of thing. But it plays right into that idea. Yeah, well,
6: don't jinx it by using that analogy. I like the punch bowl analogy much better. (laughs) And uh, maybe, you know, keep partying while the the central banks keep filling up the punch bowl. I mean, that's that's really what's going on here. Uh, The punch bowl analogy was uh, made many, many years ago. By another uh, Fed chair who said uh, that the Fed's job is to be a chaperone and actually to pull the punch bowl away when everybody's getting too, uh, too partied up. Uh, but um, for the past uh, Fed chairs, including this one, their goal has been to just keep, uh, keep that punch bowl full. And uh, it's been hard not
0: to party. Michael, I mean, that's essentially your point, right? They keep filling the punch bowl up. Yeah, it, so it, you're convincing people to stay longer and longer and longer even if we continue to get more drunk and more drunk and more drunk off these gains and valuations get more elevated, <laughs> elevated and elevated.
3: You know, fighting the Fed hasn't worked. And, and Ed Denny has been bullish when others haven't been. And it's worked out well for him. You know, so are stocks expensive? Yes. Uh, can they get a lot more expensive? Yes. But when things are getting expensive, you really do have to be careful. And you've got other guys. Art Cashin pointing out this morning in his note that, you know, January and February are kind of the months when markets pull back. So could we have a 10 percent correction here? Sure, we could. I'd, I'd actually like to do some buying, given that punch bowl tailwind. But, uh, you know, a 10 percent pullback is not the, not the end of the world either. That's kind of like saying it's going to rain sometime this month. Of course, we're going to have a pullback. Yeah. The, the tailwind I know, well, and, it's gonna, and the animal spirits that have driven it.
0: I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to step, step on your toes there. S- saying it's going to uh, rain a, a little bit and that, OK, if it's going to rain, that's fine. I'll get out the umbrella is a lot different than it feels when it starts a, a hurricane or a deluge. OK, <laughs> everybody yeah. says, well, a 10 yeah. percent pullback would be really great because I'd love to buy more until you get the 10 percent pullback. And then the crowd comes out and says, this doesn't feel real good. At 10%, maybe it's going to be 15%, or maybe it's going to be 20%. And the other side of all that is, so what does the ideal place to be uh, look like right now? And Stephanie Link, Gundlock's ideal portfolio, I thought was pretty interesting to kick around on this desk today. And Ed Yardeni can participate in that, too. Here's his ideal portfolio. 25% in emerging market equities. He favors Asia over the others. 25% in cash is a deflation position for him, 25% in long-term government bonds like the 30-year, okay, and another 25% in real assets such as gold, Bitcoin, or, or real estate. Steph, how does that sound, uh, particularly the emerging market equities being favored over the U.S. at this point?
4: Oh, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're definitely cheaper, for sure, and you have a ton of stimulus, right? We talked about the $90 trillion in global stimulus, uh, from the central bankers and, and, and whatnot. And so that is a lot of, of a tailwind for emerging markets. Um, you actually also have to believe that the dollar is going to continue to be weak or maybe it just doesn't go up from here. That would be a tailwind for emerging markets, but it is, it's almost like risk on and whatever way you want to take on risk, right? Is it U.S. equities? Is it emerging markets? Is it small caps? those are all going to kind of work and within U.S. Again, I'm more on the cyclical side. The surprise to me, Scott, was the bond allocation because he's, he is worried about inflation a little bit, right? And so that's not going to make you a lot of money. He so admits That's the it. only piece of it. He, yeah. he admits
0: oh, that, it, yeah. right? He yeah. admits it as part of his, his thing. He thinks you're going to lose money on it, on his bond yeah. play, but he still wants so to have I, allocation there.
6: So why do that? I mean, why, why not just put that allocation in, in U.S. equities? And I like Michael's idea of, that this could be a year for stock pickers as opposed to momentum players. Uh, and and Stephanie made a very good point. There are a lot of good ideas out there uh, in financials, uh, in some of the laggard techs, uh, in industrials, uh, that I think uh, could continue to perform pretty well this year. Uh, so, you know, a lot of the overvaluation has been in basically five stocks, now maybe six stocks now that uh, Tesla's in there. Uh, but uh, once you get out of the uh, uh, S&P uh, Five and going to the S and P and uh, uh, four ninety five. There are still stocks that uh, look pretty good.
0: Yeah, Amy uh, Brian Belsky, who you know is a, a frequent guest on this program too. We quote from his research a lot. Says it's time now to get more cyclical. Update. Uh, he upgrades materials to overweight. He's already overweight discretionary, financials, um, and and industrials. Goldman's derivatives team says, look, we've been looking at investment flows. They've been unusually strong. The S&P didn't rally as much as we thought it would under those conditions. So there's sort of a spring uh, ready to go there. Uh, They say the S&P should have rallied 10 percent more than it did over the past three months, implying that there's a a big little burst or not big little burst, a big burst that, that may come.
2: Well, you know, we've been talking about the Fed and spiking the punch ball. We have to if, if that really happens, comes to pass even further than it has already. It's going to have economic implications. And I think that's what everybody is talking about, about moving more cyclical and moving overweight materials. We agree with that. Um, we're coming out of this recession in a very different place than we came out of the great recession of um 2009, 2010. Um, The consumer's in much better shape. Liquidity is prevalent everywhere. Now, I think some of that liquidity will come out of the markets and move into the real economy, but it's certainly going to favor a shift and a favor towards inflation beneficiaries. Now, that's not really consumer discretionary in my mind. But it certainly is materials and energy um, and even financials to some degree. Yeah, I'm frankly um, surprised.
0: I'm sorry, Amy. I'm frankly surprised that that you've been buying more EOG. You've been buying more Royal Dutch Shell. You've been buying more uh, Uh, Slumberger. So you still believe that there's room to go in an energy space that has already had a monster move, as has the price of crude oil.
2: Oh, absolutely. Energy, I think, you know, it's a trade, admittedly, but I think there's room to go. It's still down a lot. Um, And if you look at, you know, energy as a percent, I think I was on the show when energy, the sector itself crossed below 2 percent of the S&P down from 13 percent in 2008. Um, I think there's a lot of room to go here. I think now it's three and a half or something like that. Um, You know, there's been a lot of Disinvestment uh, from energy for years now. Uh, you just last year, you had all the major slash their capex budgets. Um, OPEC's been very disciplined. The world is still going to need fossil fuels, for better or worse, and I would argue worse. But that's still the, it's going to be the case for the foreseeable future. So, so we've been adding to energy. We've been we were underweight for seven years. Um, we went overweight towards the third quarter of last year. It's worked really well. And I think it's one of my highest conviction calls right wow, now.
0: Wow, Underweight for seven years. Steph Link, you, you bought Slumberger uh, mm-hmm. not all that long ago, too. You, you agree with, with Amy about energy?
4: Yeah, I do like the energy sector. I only own Slumberger and Chevron, but they're pretty big bets for me. Here's the thing, though, Scott, it's 2.59 percent of my of my benchmark, which is the S&P 500. Five years ago, it was 9%. So you've seen such a dramatic decline and values lost. And so I don't think anyone was really paying attention to it. So it doesn't take much for these stocks to actually go higher. But I still think you want to be particular. I think you want to stock pick on these. And I, I think both Chevron uh, and Schlumberger, good combination. One has a little more higher beta. One has a great dividend yield. Um, and I, I really like te- the technology aspect of Schlumberger that we've talked about. So, so yeah, I'm overweight about 200
0: basis points overweight energy. Ed Denny, what do you think about energy? Is it legit or have we gotten ahead of ourselves here? We need to come back to Earth a little bit.
6: Well, I I think we've definitely seen a a fairly broad based rebound in commodity prices. uh, And uh, it's uh, very normal, very typical of uh, of a recovery period on a global basis. Uh, the, The real surprises have been how strong the economic recovery has been, despite the fact that the pandemic is still out there, that... Uh, the third wave of uh, the pandemic in the U.S. is turning out to be the worst so far. Yet despite all that, uh, commodity prices has strongly signal that the global economy is uh, recovering and recovering uh, remarkably quickly and strongly. And uh, energy is part of that story. Um, if copper uh, is strong, uh, typically uh, oil prices are strong. So I really think that uh, we are looking at a... Uh, Really typical cyclical recovery in the global economy as demonstrated by commodities, as demonstrated by oil and now as demonstrated by the rotation in the stock market towards uh, more cyclical, cyclicals and just a broadening market with more stock picking
0: opportunities. Wow. XLE 40 percent in just three months. That speaks to the point that we're yeah. trying to make here. Ed, I appreciate your time today. We'll talk to you again soon. That's Ed Yardeni sure. uh, joining our conversation today. Doc, I mean, you've been making some options plays in energy, too.
1: Well, uh, to a certain extent, Scott, yes, um, but in particular certain types of energy, um, which again I'm going to define as you know, fuel cell. We talked about that December 23rd with you on this show when that uh, particular stock was $12. Now look at it screaming all the way up to $18, massive move. Um, take a look at plug um, and uh, a number of the solar plays. Those are the areas that I'm still focused on right now, Scott as well as these Chinese EVs. I mean, XPEV, one that we've talked about frequently, you and I. This one just exploding to the upside, along with Neo, along with Li. And those are areas, when we talk about energy, that I think really still have a lot more to go under a Biden administration, Scott. It's not just the United States, of course, driving that, but China trying to clean their air or keep it cleaner uh, without burning as much fossil fuel and, of course, demand here for green energy, I think those stocks play very well into that.
0: I, I mean, I, I hear you. Um, some do suggest, though, that that EVs are one of the biggest bubbles in the market right now. Mm-hmm. NEO is up 50 percent. Mm-hmm. Well, th- look, throw up the NEO chart, guys, if you could, please, in the back. Sure. Um, because let's talk about this mm-hmm. specifically. I don't know how many of our viewers are, okay. are, are in it or if they're in other stocks related to it. But Neo is up 50% in a month. Give me one month if you could. There you go. 50% in one month, Doc. Sure.
1: Well, and they're expanding outside of China too, Scott. And that's one of the big reasons I think some of the people that um, got in on that trade early are now riding it and not willing to exit. Um, it's, it's not a seller's strike, but it's certainly more people buying than people selling. And you and I know supply and demand drives these things. In the Chinese EV space, Scott, I think we're still talking not about half a million vehicles like Tesla nearly delivered this past year. We're talking about 16,000 vehicles, things like that. So that's on the, you know, we're not even in spring training yet for those guys. Forget about is it late innings. So I think those along with, uh, like I said, XPEV, Lee, um, even Solo up in Canada is seeing some uh, additional moves to the upside. I think those are early stage, but you're more than welcome to take profits. I think that's a smart trader and or investor that does pull profits off when they move this quickly.
0: All right. Let's talk about taking profits in another area. Michael Farr, we'll do that before we take a quick break. And that is your sale of cognizant technology, CTSH. Tell me why.
3: Uh, pretty much valuation, Scott. It's one we've owned for a long time. We think the valuation has gotten rather full in that consulting business, uh, services business. The, the opportunity in other names is just better, and we're going to redeploy that cash. We are buying another name today, which I'll talk about next time we're on. But sometimes you just have to take some profits and move some money around, particularly when you see the economy shifting the way this one is.
0: What do you mean you're not allowed to talk about that name? today. Is that, is that why you said that? I'm not going to get you in trouble, but is that why you said that?
3: That's why I said it, because, yeah, they're buying it today, and boy, I'd be in, the, I'd be in hot water.
0: Okay, I just want to make sure why our more, viewers... More hot are, water than
3: normal, Scott.
0: Understood. I, I just wanted to make sure our viewers understood why you uh, you weren't being cagey, that you, you couldn't yes. do it. Okay, uh, let's take a That's quick right. break. Check out this, this, uh, Check out shares of this bank stock. It surged more than 40% in just two months. A top pick named by one firm now, We're going to debate that in our call of the day. We'll do it next on The Half in Two Minutes.
5: Welcome back, everyone. I'm Sue Herrera. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo isn't waiting for the expected update to federal vaccination guidelines, saying people aged 65 or older are now eligible immediately. But he says there still aren't enough doses available for that increase in recipients, complaining the federal government has provided only 300,000 doses, with at least 7 million New Yorkers now in the extended eligibility group. The Democratic leader in the Senate wants anyone identified as breaching the Capitol last week to be added to the federal no-fly list. The Associated Press reports that in a letter to the FBI, Chuck Schumer says the intruders are domestic terrorists who pose a danger to aviation. And amid threats of violence at state capitals as the inauguration approaches, Richmond, Virginia has now declared a state of emergency and is putting up protective fencing, with similar precautions being taken all across the country. You are up to date. That's the news update. Scott, I'll send it back to you.
0: Sue, appreciate it. Thank you, Sue Herrera. All right, let's talk Wells Fargo. Why? Because it was upgraded today to a buy named the top pick at UBS. It comes ahead of earnings on Friday. It's our call of the day. Stephanie Link knows I'm coming to her on this. <laughs> <laughs> the price target increased to $41 from 23. Um, Steph, uh, look, you, you, you bought this when it was incredibly unpopular. OK, now people are coming around to the point of view because there are more notes about it that we seemingly cite, you know, every few every couple times a, a week that Wells Fargo is the place to be. It's your biggest bank holding. Make the case now to a viewer who may not own it. Why they can still.
4: Yeah, and I definitely think that they can still um, only 46 percent of the sell side have buys on this stock. The stock was down 34 percent in the last year alone. It trades at 0.8 times book value. The group trades at 1.2 times book value. It trades at 9.1 times earnings. The group's at 11 times earnings. So you can make a valuation case if you believe it's the turnaround is gonna work. And turnarounds, we talk about it all the time, they take a long time. But this company has a very strong CEO. He's repairing the company. They have a whole new executive team, new people on the board, new business lines. And they've already cut numbers and increased reserves. So a lot of the bad news is out of the way. And oh, by the way, they have a huge focus on cost cutting. And I think they could probably reduce costs maybe like 2 3% a year. And that goes a long way on the efficiency ratio side in terms of the operating leverage, what it means to earnings.
0: So this goes beyond what sounded primarily like a bet on Charlie Scharf. Now it has morphed into some fundamental reasons, it sounds like you're saying as to why you can own this beyond simply loving the person who's who's guiding the ship.
4: Yeah, you know, he's made the right decisions too though, right? I mean, he's hired an entire new executive team who has a ton of credibility. So it was just a matter of time for them to kind of put their program in place and then execute on that program. That's why I say it takes a long time for turnarounds to work. So I think you're going to start to see an improvement gradually. And, of course, the yield curve and rates going higher certainly doesn't hurt. It absolutely helps them in every way. And, again, the sentiment, while it's improving, you still have 15 sell-side analysts that are either hold or sell on this stock. So I think sentiment can further turn. Now, I will say this. I do not like this setup into the quarter, right, because the stock has run a lot and expectations are higher. But I do like this for the long term. Well,
0: that's that's an interesting point you make. And, and John, look, you own Wells Calls along with J.P. Morgan Stock and mm-hmm. Bank of America Calls. And what Steph said as she finished her thought there is sounds to me like where Kramer was on this 10 days ago. With like, look, the, these stocks, yes, you believe in the banks, but don't be surprised if you get a pullback once they announce earnings. Right. Because it, hap- it happens every time. There's belief in it. Then you hear the earnings and then there's a sell off. So you're going to get a different and maybe better entry point into the banks and maybe Wells Fargo included. What do you think?
1: Well, and uh, it's one of the ways I am playing it, Scott, Uh, outside of the ones you mentioned. I'm also in Capital One and Key Bank. The one not on that list is Citi. And I have to kick myself for not getting in because I cited it when Ms. Frazier was elevated to the position that she's taking i i just kick myself but i think i might get a chance to get into that one a little cheaper if not scott right into these earnings i'll be selling puts and at least get a little bit of satisfaction from that in that stock let her see because i think i can get a better entry point and if i make that commitment by selling puts it obligates me to buy at that level so Hopefully I do get that put to me, Scott, because, like I say, I think she's an ESG play Mm -hmm. just by being the first woman to lead a major bank.
0: Interesting. Uh, Amy, you bought more JP Morgan and we'll we'll take a break after that. But tell me about it.
2: Yeah. No, um, I agree with closing the underweight for uh, interest rate sensitive banks. I also think there's going to be a big M&A cycle in front of us. So we own um, we have a big position in Goldman Sachs. We bought more. We own JP Morgan. We bought more. Um, just just really closing the underweight um, in in these names that could potentially benefit from um, yield yields going up, which we think is going to happen as well.
0: All right. Good stuff. We will take that break for more on today's biggest calls of the day. You can check out the write up on CNBC Pro. Go to CNBC.com slash pro. Up next, shares of Novartis struggling over the past year. The pharma giant CEO is with us exclusively to talk about the impact of the virus on their cancer and gene therapy work, and when he expects a return to normal. We're back in just two minutes. A lot of headlines coming out of J.P. Morgan's healthcare conference. Our Meg Terrell covering it as usual and joins us now with a CNBC exclusive interview. Hi, Meg.
7: Hi, Scott. Thanks so much. Novartis CEO Voss Narasimhan joins us now. Voss, it's great to have you here with us. You guys, of course, are one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in the world. You've got activities in cancer and heart disease, gene therapy. Tell us about the impacts that you're seeing of the pandemic on these different parts of your business and what you're kind of modeling uh, as for getting back to normal, if we can hope for that anytime soon.
8: Well, great to be here, Meg. And, and what we see um, throughout twenty, what we saw throughout twenty twenty, is that there was an impact on patient visits. It kind of oscillated over the course of the year. Some therapeutic areas were more impacted. Uh, and then others, areas such as dermatology, anti-infectives, uh, ophthalmology were particularly infected, uh, impacted. But we also saw, you know, I think, effects generally in the healthcare system. I think there's a, a kind of second pandemic ongoing, a syndemic, so to speak, that's really impacting patients' ability to get non-communicable uh, disease treatments in a timely manner. So what we model now for the first part of 2021 is we expect two quarters of continued volatility as we see lockdowns, as we see hospitals focused on treating COVID. And we hope in the back half of the year that things return more to a stable situation. Mm.
7: What are your expectations for this incoming administration here in the U.S.? And with now the House and the Senate with the Democrats, what that will mean for coming legislation for your industry, potentially more pressure on drug prices and a focus on biosimilars and generics?
8: I think it's too early to really say how exactly this is, uh, is gonna play out. I mean, I think one of the things we're watching very quick, quick, uh, carefully is what are the priorities for the new administration? I think one of the things we're looking at is you know, which legislative priorities they put forward. As an industry, I think we have to be really for uh, you know, coming up with solutions that really help solve the, the key challenges in Part B, in Part D, and overall uh, patient affordability. Uh, I'm confident that we as an industry can put forward a a set of compelling uh, packages that I hope will enable Congress to move something forward uh, in the the coming years. But I think it's too soon to judge exactly how the new administration is going to approach this.
7: Mm. One thing that Novartis has been focused on a lot over the last year has been ESG, environmental social governance focus. You know, pharma has not always really been included in that category and just sort of from a societal perspective, among the least liked and respected industries out there. um, How do you see the pandemic and the work that your industry has done in it potentially changing that along with the efforts that you've been putting into this space?
8: You know, I think the pandemic has been a reset for the reputation of the industry. We started out really demonstrating that we could collaborate across the industry with the public sector, with uh, academia to move incredibly quickly on therapeutics and vaccines. And you've seen uh, the result with the remarkable work in mRNA vaccines uh, that's been accomplished to date. And I hope to see more vaccines coming in the first part of, of this year. I think that's reset the public's perception and really, you know, viewing the industry as part of the solution as an innovation engine that can transform life on on the planet, as it has uh, as an industry over the last century. And I I think that points to the importance now to continue the momentum with respect to ESG related topics. Many of your viewers will know increasingly funds, increasingly investors, increasingly, uh, I think, millennials as they move into the investment range want to see companies that are behaving responsibly and i think for us as a company for our own employees as well as our role in society we've made as novartis esg central to our strategic pillars it's one of our top five pillars something we take very seriously on a day in and day out basis and we hope to demonstrate progress on esg topics access to medicines pricing of our medicines thinking about ethics global health on an ongoing basis
7: We mentioned the pandemic kind of potentially resetting society's view of the pharmaceutical industry. It's also introduced us on a much faster pace to some new technologies like messenger RNA, for example. Um, You guys, of course, are a big leader in gene therapy. I wonder what are the most exciting sort of newer technologies that you see out there? You know, and is there anything about maybe mRNA or anything else that you've seen kind of through this pandemic that, that strikes you as interesting and potentially a new space for Novartis?
8: Well, I'll start with where you know you've already highlighted it. RNA is clearly undergoing a, a revolution right now. I mean, we we've been working on RNA based therapeutics for decades, but now we're seeing the power of long chain mRNA as, as a vaccine, as you've seen with the two uh, recently approved vaccines. We have recently gotten approval in Europe for an interfering RNA medicine to treat uh, cholesterol uh, elevated cholesterol, a twice a year medicine. I think is really really interesting. I think you're going to see a slew of RNA-based therapeutics, either uh, administering RNAs or interfering with RNAs, or even looking at RNA transcription factors. So I think RNA is going to become a bigger and bigger space. You mentioned cell and gene therapies. We now, with Raya, with Zolgensma, have globally launched these products. We believe this will continue to be uh, an important area for the industry. It's going to go through bumps. We're going to learn more about these technologies. But we believe cell and gene therapies will be able to address many diseases in in truly transformative ways some other areas we're interested in we have an investment in an area called Radioligand therapeutics Uh, it's a unique therapeutic that uses nuclear medicine to tackle cancers we're quite uh, quite excited about that we also of course are looking Mm -hmm. like many in the industry on whether or not gene editing can lead to curative therapies many products, including some in our own portfolio, now entering the clinic. So it's an exciting time across medicine, across science, and I'm hopeful this will lead to a whole next wave of innovation that will drive the growth in our sector for a decade plus to come.
7: Absolutely. Well, Vasnarsim, and thank you so much for being with us today. We look forward to hearing about all of those updates, those exciting technologies. Thanks again. And, Scott, I'll send it back over to you.
0: And our thanks, as always, Meg Terrell. All right, stay with us. John has his latest trades and unusual activity. We'll do that next right here on The Half. Time for unusual activity. Dr. J, what do you see for us today?
1: Well, Scott, a Chinese online social site known as Momo, and it's got Momo. Believe me, right now, the stock has moved all the way up from below 14 to pushing towards 15, Scott. They're buying the 14.50 calls with this week expiration. So this is very short term. Uh, They only have three more trading days to be right. But they bought these calls for like 30 cents, Scott, up to 40 cents. So that's a cheap shot. I'm in these calls and I'll ride them most of the way this week. But again, I'll be very disciplined about taking profits. Second one is Exalta. Um, This one is coatings. And it's also got Momo. It's moved up from below 30 to now right at 31. That's the strike they're buying, Scott, out in February. The February 31, regular February 31 calls. They bought those very aggressively. I joined that buying, and I'll probably be in those about three to four weeks, Scott.
0: All right, good stuff. Dr. J, thank you so much. Coming up, the yield on the 10-year. That's how we started our show today. It jumped to its highest level in nearly 10 months. That's why. So we'll find out from the futures traders what your best trade there is. Right now, the yield 116 got as high as 118 today. We're back after this. Time for the futures outlook. The 10-year Treasury yield hitting its highest level since March. Let's bring in Brian Stutland and Scott Nations. All right, Brian, you first. You tell me where you think the yield is going.
9: Well, it looks like we're trending higher. Obviously, we broke out above 1% and we're off to the races. And a couple things are going on, Scott. Look at one thing. CPI numbers are coming in hotter than expected. They've been ticking up faster than normal. You look at housing prices, lumber, copper prices, healthcare costs. Those are all going up. That's a hardship on the middle class. That's putting pressure to the upside on interest rates. So hopefully, you refinance your mortgage before they go higher here. The other thing is stock valuations. I think they're OK right now. And I think stocks can move higher. But eventually, stocks move up more. Rates are going to have to go up higher to combat that. And then you get that big volatility event that occurs. So until Janet Yellen on the Treasury side or the Fed steps in and starts to lower rates, I think you're going to see some wild swings back and forth in the 10-year note as rates move higher, stocks move higher, and then maybe collapse if we get another volatility event in 2021.
0: Okay. Scott Nations, what do you think?
9: Well, it's Brian, it's like it. this time, big round number mattered, 1% mattered. Once we got above that in a 10-year yield, we never looked back, didn't even come close to looking back, and the 10-year yield really got going. 1.86% this time last year, so you would think we'd get back to that level. But the interesting thing, Scott, is that from April to August, we moved essentially sideways, and then from August to November, we did the same thing again. Now that we're above 1%, what happens? Well, as you can see there, looking at the relative index, yields are overbought, so we would expect it to move sideways. For another month or two before we get that rally uh, in yields, two and a half percent is what uh, the the Fed's looking for for inflation. So you have to think the yields are going to continue
0: higher. I mean, the wild card, too, is if you get some upward, real upward momentum, whether the Fed will, quote unquote, let rates uh, get to that, that test of 52 weeks uh, of where it was 52 weeks ago. We'll see. I mean, the circumstances are different now, so we'll see. Guys, thank you. Scott Nations, Brian Stutland, Thanks, talk to you soon. We'll do Final Trades next. All right, let's do Final Trades. John and Jerry, and I'm coming to you first. You have a new buy. Tell me what it is and, uh, and why.
1: Uh, all right, Scott. It is Zenga. ZNGA, we see some fast, unusual option activity in there. Options that expire next week, Scott, I bought those during the show.
0: Okay, just options, no stock, though, right? Just options, no stock. Okay, there's Zynga today down about 1%. Amy, good to see you again. Been a while. Happy New Year. What's your final trade?
2: Great to see you, too. Happy New Year. Um, FANIC, it's a Japanese automation and robotics company. It does have a U.S. ADR. Um, we think earnings revisions are going to go up higher, um, cyclical and secular tailwinds. So we like this one a lot right now.
0: OK, Michael Farr, you know, we've been going around the committee getting some best picks for 2021. Why don't you give me one of yours today, please?
3: One of my top 10, Scott, Beckton Dickinson, the world's largest manufacturer of syringes and hypodermic needles. It's a discount to the peer group, discount, discount to the S&P 500. Going to see year over year earnings growth over 20
0: percent. I like that stock. All right. One of Michael Forrest's top 10. Yeah. We appreciate it. It's good to see you as well, Michael. All right. Let's take a look at the markets before we go again. uh, The major averages aren't doing a whole heck of a lot today, but it's really the interest rate complex that has a lot of conversation. Ten-year yield, highest since March. You just saw it at 117. That does it for us. Thanks for watching. The exchanges. now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.